chapter 11. I hope it's on screen. Bruce, whenever Bruce does slides, we always bombard him with everything. And so uh, I feel sorry for you today, Bruce, but here we go. Mark 11. Do you have your Bibles out? If you don't have your Bibles out, do you have your phone out, the app? You might want to highlight some verses today, and you might want to be able to go quickly, because I'm going to talk as fast as I can, okay? Let's read this. Uh, As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage and Bethany. What do you know? At the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it. The Lord needs it. And send it back here shortly. They went. They found a colt out, outside the street, and at, at, tied to the doorway. And as they untied it, some people were standing there and asked, "What are you doing, untying that colt? Don't you know that's theft?" They answered, "Jesus had told them to." And the people let them go. When they brought the colt back, Jesus to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and while others spread branches. They cut, in, they cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom, is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. And since it was already late, he went out, uh, went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, As they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found that it had nothing but leaves because it was not in season for figs. Then he said, may no one ever eat from your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the, and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And, and as he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, that today marks the beginning of Palm Sunday, uh, the day that we are, the beginning of the week where we start looking towards your resurrection uh, next week. And Lord, may your spirit begin to move today as we examine what on earth is happening in this situation. May your spirit convict us where we need to be convicted, comfort where we need to be comforted. In your name we pray, amen. Now, this is a weird passage, right? Usually we break this up into three separate weeks because you have, you have the triumphal entry, which is Palm Sunday, and then you have this whole fig tree incident. You're like, what the heck did the tree do? It doesn't make any sense. And then you come to this part where Jesus cleanses the temple. Uh, if you look in, in, in biblical scholarship, they call it a Marcan sandwich uh, because Mark wrote it. So it's Mark, Marcan, Mark, Markin sandwich where he just piles like there's a, a fig tree, something happens, and then a fig tree. In this case, we've it traditionally just stopped at two of those things, where it's just like a single layer. But when you look at this whole passage together, it's a Marcane sandwich, but it's like a club sandwich, like five or six layers happening with all the good stuff in the middle surrounded by fig trees and what's going on with the fig tree. 
It's a good sandwich, but we need to take a couple bites with it. And so today we're going to look at this and figure out what all the, all the layers are going on here. Why does Jesus leave Bethpage, come into town, hailed as a conquering king? Everyone's saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of David. And then he goes in in the most anticlimactic way, looks around the temple, and then leaves. Nothing was happening, so he left. And then on his way out the next morning, he curses the fig tree. And then going back to the temple the next day, the fig tree's dead and gone. And he turns over money changers. And then the whole thing is just one of those scenes where you're just going, what on earth is happening? And it being a sandwich, we probably should write our, or be able to get our hands around it so we can get a good bite out of it and see what it means to us. But what I want us to see is that this whole section and even beyond what we read today constitute both a living parable that both fulfills prophecy and then speaks to us where we are in our situation. The prophetic imagery that's happening here, uh, you see all throughout the Old Testament. There's a lot of context. And if you just read it, you'd probably breeze through it and not understand it. So in order for us to see what's going on, we need to see the symbolism that Mark is pointing at. Mark loves symbolism, and we miss it. So if you have your Bibles out, keep a finger at Mark 11, bookmark it, and go to Hosea chapter 9. Hosea is one of those books that we tend to overlook and we tend to misunderstand because it's in the whole prophetic section of Scripture. It's that scary attic part of Scripture where we read it and we go, boy, this is scary. God's mad. Why is this happening? Why is Hosea there? We start asking all these questions. We don't understand it. And rightfully so, we go, let's just skip these 12 books. But these 12 books have a lot to do with what Jesus was doing in this part. So Hosea 9, 10, here God describes his first encounter with Israel. Look what he says. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing fruit on a fig tree. So right then and there, we start seeing Israel picks up this idea or this, this symbol as a fig. Israel as a fig. And then later on in Scripture, as you move through it, Israel is a fig tree. The temple is used as a fig tree. In Jeremiah 24, well, how many of you ever had a fig? They're delicious, right? How many of you ever had a fig Newton? Not as delicious, right? No, figs are much better than fig Newtons. Wait, did we have a fan of fig Newtons? Okay. <laughs> Clearly, you didn't have a good fig. In Jeremiah 24... You have, what's that? And figs too, okay. Well, okay. In Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah sees this vision and he's talking about Israel in Jeremiah. He starts seeing that there's, uh, there's figs and they pertain to Israel. The good figs were the ones who were exiled and God will bring them back to the land of the living, Jeremiah says, giving them a heart to know God. While the bad figs were the children of Zedekiah and the Jewish leaders who became a, a, a byword or a curse. In these two sections, Israel is the fig. Uh, and here's the question. When you plant a fig tree or any kind of tree, what do you expect? Fruit. Oh, you guys, we're gonna, this is going to be great. The expectation is that they produce fruit. Now, because Israel was an agrarian culture, and oftentimes these prophets and teachers were they themselves farmers, look at Amos uh, and, and several others, they used fruit and trees to relate to what God was trying to say or what God was trying to do. In many of these prophetic parables, the nation of Israel 
is either the farmland or the tree. Isaiah 5 says this uh, in verse 1, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now Isaiah is talking about the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and more importantly, the temple on a hillside. Jerusalem was on a hill. The expectation that Jeremiah gets at, the expectation that Isaiah, Isaiah gets at, is that people would see the fruit and the vineyard that is Israel, and they would be encouraged to have an encounter with the one true God. That when people came to the temple, they would see God, they would know God, they would be attracted to God. Hence, the picture of a lush vineyard on a hillside, and God was the farmer. Isaiah talks more about a watchtower, and many people think that's the law, that the watchtower watched over and kept everyone safe, that if you just followed what God had done, people would be attracted to what God is doing in the town, and it would bring about great fruit. How many of you know Old Testament history? Did it? No. And so Isaiah 5 continues. Uh, he says in verse 5, now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I'm going to take its hedge away and it'll be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it'll be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there, and I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Jeremiah picks, on the, picks up on this. I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and the leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. So here you see this whole idea of the expectation. And then the expectation is not there. The expectation was that it would be a beautiful tree with figs and grapes. When the Israelites went into the promised land, what did they came, come back with the first time with the 12 spies who were bad, 10 were bad, and 2 were good? What did they come back with? Figs and grapes. This was the expectation, that they would be fruitful. But as their history goes on after Solomon, or even during Solomon's reign, they start following idols. They start getting carried away uh, by idolatry, by other agendas, by other nations. They start breaking and not holding to God's law. And then they become a wasteland. God said he's going to remove the hedge of protection that he has around them. And what he's saying is, I'm going, I'm going to allow other nations to now come invade you. And they did. In 722 B.C., uh, and in 536, Israel was invaded by Babylon and Assyria, or Assyria and Babylon in that order. And when they came, they carried people away, and then they destroyed the temple. The fertile ground that was promised, this watchtower, this place where they were going to encounter God because it was a wasteland, Ezekiel tells us more and more about how they were worshiping other things besides God. God left, and now it's being pummeled. It was a wasteland, and the prophecy was fulfilled, kind of, partly fulfilled there. The beautiful thing about prophecy, though, is when you read it, when you read these scary books in that section of your Bible, there's always a sense of prophetic hope. There's always talk of destruction. There's always talk of death. But at the very end, you see this. If, it's a big if, if you return to me, in some way it'll say that, the word teshuva, that means to come back. If you return, none of this can happen. We can avoid all of this. If you come back, 
And then at, at the end of some of these prophetic books, it's already known that they're not going to return. The exiles are already gone. Assyria and Babylon have already taken over. They talk about this restoration, this idea that Israel is going to return to prominence. And so many Jews, as they read through these prophetic books, would hold on to that hope, as we all would, right? Things are going to be made better because right now we're living in exile and God's going to return us to this greatness. For them, it was greatness as it was under King David and the military powerhouse that they were, they were the superpower that no one could control, the nation of prosperity that other nations looked to and said, wish we can be like Israel. It meant for them that not only were they a global player on the stage with nationally, it meant that their God can be worshipped and their temple would be restored back to the greatness that it was in Solomon's day. However, there were so many problems with this. The issue mainly was that after Babylon came, after the exiles went back, they were still under control of another nation and then another nation. And then Greece came in and took them over. And then after Greece, Rome, and then the Seleucids. And even today, they're still not back to where they were. The temple for them was still in ruins. And in the time of the Greece, when Greece was there, Antiochus completely desecrated the temple. During this time, because of the prophetic hope that Israel had, uh, there would be uh, many attempts to drive out these nations. One of the most famous ones and successful ones was the one called the Maccabean Revolt. How many of you ever read Maccabees? It is awesome. Uh, I hope they make a movie about it. It'll be rated R for Braveheart-type blood and violence, but it is a, an interesting book. But the whole, they had the most successful revolt. It was in 167 B.C., the revolt lasted 100, it was 160 years before Jesus. They came, they retook Jerusalem, they kicked the Greeks out of the temple, they reinstated the sacrifice for the first time, they took away all of the Greek gods that were in there. And it was this pivotal moment in Jewish history. For the first time in 500 years, the Jews were able to worship Yahweh freely. It's a great time in Jewish history. This was what they wanted. There, this is the return, the reset of the temple sacrifices for the first time. It reignited this prophetic hope. And out of this came some symbols. Are we tracking? The symbols that came from this were the most prominent one, a palm branch. What's today? Palm Sunday. If this was a time where they looked at this palm branch as a symbol of the Maccabean revolt and the great things that came from it. And the palm branch began, began to represent freedom from Rome, freedom from oppression. The other symbol that came out was the word Hosanna. For them, it was their battle cry. When they went into war, they would shout Hosanna and they would start fighting. Eventually, though, this revolt was squashed by Antiochus VII. And Israel was back under the control of somebody else. But the symbols remained. And one day Israel would return. This was the expectation for the vineyard to return back to the vineyard that was talked about in the Old Testament. That they would be a place of fertile ground that people would be attracted to, that people would want to come to. And they would, the fig tree would regrow and it would produce fruit. So, put yourself in that situation. It's kind of hard for us to imagine this in all seriousness, this kind of life that they were under. They hadn't had their own nation in centuries. And now, you're waiting for a Messiah. 
And every once in a while, you would hear something, rumblings over a Messiah that's there, and you would watch for it. You would wait for the revolt. There was actually a group of Jewish people that would set aside. They were the zealots. They were ready to go at a moment's notice and fight. And they hear this idea that a Messiah is now here. And this Messiah is different. This Messiah is raising people from the dead. This Messiah has authority. He doesn't teach like the other prophets who studied the book. This guy teaches like he actually wrote the book because he did. He's coming into town this Passover week. And then they start thinking, Passover, Passover. There's a Messiah who has power and authority. He's raising people from the dead. He's curing the blind. He's healing leprosy. He's, he's going to bring us out of our, uh, our oppression on Passover, which is signifying what God did on the first Passover and brought them out of the oppression of Egypt. So things start clicking here. Now, that's the history that they're sitting with in Mark 11. Let's go back to Mark 11. Did I lose you at any place? Are we good? Ken? All right. Here we go. Uh, Mark 11. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage. Bethpage is also a golf course in Pennsylvania. It's Master's Weekend. I have to say that. And Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you will find a colt there. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and take it and he'll have it back shortly. When they brought the colt back to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it and many people spread their cloaks out while others spread branches. They had cut in the fields. Now, well, we breeze by this, but there's three or four observations we need to look at. Zechariah 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, riding on a donkey or colt, the fowl of a donkey. So we start seeing the colt was a sign for something. It was a sign that there was a new king in town that something's brewing here. It's a big deal. This is prophecy being fulfilled, and everyone sees what happened. Now, what did they do? What are they carrying in their hands? Branches. Matthew takes time to note that they're palm branches. We got branches. Now, look what they're saying in verse 10. Blessed is the king, is the, is the coming kingdom of our father David. And what do they say? Hosanna. They have branches and they're shouting Hosanna, and what are they looking for? The kingdom of our father, David. They're looking for revolution. They think this is another revolt, and now he's back to judge Rome for good, but he's not back to judge Rome. And the clue for this happens all the way back in verse 1. Help me out here. What, what town did Jesus start in? Bethpage. Uh, Bethpage, why is that important? Every town has a name, right? Of course, right? Bethlehem means house of bread. Okay, Jesus was born in the house of bread. He's the bread of life. It's kind of like, oh, that's cool. Bethpage means this, an unripened fig. And so Jesus starts his journey in a place where the fig is unripened. Names are important. What was Israel known as? A fig. And so Jesus entered the town and went to the temple. He comes from the place of unripened figs. He comes into the temple, which is represented by a fig, and then he looks around at everything, and then since it's already late, he leaves back with the 12. It is the weirdest part. It's like, uh, have any of you seen the, the movie Swingers? Maybe not. I'm probably saying how old I am. It's about these guys who go to various parties. They walk in, they go, 
It's dead here. And then they leave. That's exactly what Jesus did. He walks in, he looks around, and leaves. All the fanfare, all the branches, all the shouting, all the cloaks, all the prophecy, looks around, and it's late, and he leaves. And we go, oh, that's weird. But there's something else going on here. The symbolism is reflecting the finer points of, do you remember Isaiah 5? The Lord came down, looked at the vineyard. It was not producing fruit. And then what did he do? Laid waste to it. The owner of the field, Jesus, who owns the temple, walks into the temple looking for fruit, and there's none. And so what's he do? He leaves. The temple is not ready. It's unripened. Jesus was there to examine the fruit. Jesus didn't come to purify. He didn't come to rededicate. Jesus came in a matter of God who comes to Israel, who shows up to inspect the fruit before rendering a verdict. The timestamp of it's too late is pointing to the idea that the judgment that God has for the temple, the judgment that God has for Israel, the judgment for God, what God has over what's going on in Jerusalem that day has already been rendered. It's already set in stone. Here's what happens. The next day, when they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree that was in leaf, or another way of saying a fig tree that, was in, that wasn't yet in season, it just had leaves, he went to it to find out when it had any fruit. When he reached it, there was nothing there because it was not seasoned for figs. Then he said to the fig tree, may no one eat of your fruit again. And the disciples heard them say it. This is about a fig tree, but it's not about a fig tree. It's about something else. The fig tree is the symbol for what's going on inside the temple. Just as the vineyard stands for Israel, the fig tree symbolizes the, what's inside of Jerusalem, the temple, Israel. Jesus' action of going over to the fig tree was to discern whether or not any fruit on it was symbolic on what he just did the day before inside Jerusalem, what he just did in, in the previous passage. He's examining it. And Mark notes this. He says it's full of leaves, yet it wasn't in season, which is a confusing statement because it's about more than just a tree. Instead, it's about the condition of the tree or the condition of the temple. It looks great. It's pretty. It's blooming. But it's useless. There's no fruit on it. Look closely at verse 14. The way that Jesus talks to the tree is, uh, he says, and answering the tree, he said... The way the Greek is written there is the same way that Jesus talks to people who ask him a question. He's talking to the tree as if it's a person or an institution. And he's saying, may no one ever eat of you again. And the way it's translated in the Greek, it says, no longer until eternity, no one eat fruit from you. He says that to this tree, this judgment has come. And now he goes back to the temple. On reaching the temple... Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. They would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer? It's a direct quote from Isaiah, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, we always say that Jesus was going through cleaning out injustice, right? That's how we always look at that. He's flipping over tables because these people were ripping people off and they're making money off of them. However, those same people would have been there the day before, and he didn't do it then. There's something else happening here. 
Instead, what Jesus is doing is enacting the judgment that the tree is dead. And so he's shutting down the temple. Are those people bad? Not necessarily. Those people were necessary for temple worship. If you and I were to go into another country, we would have to exchange our currency, right? Especially if you wanted to buy and sell. And this is exactly what those people would do. People would come into Jerusalem, especially for this week, and they would have to pay a temple tax. And how are you, how are you supposed to pay a temple tax when your currency is in the wrong form? They didn't have banks that translated it for them. They would go to the money changers. They would say, would you exchange my $5 and this dollar for, for $5 and temple dollars or give me the proper sacrifice? These people weren't necessarily evil. They were assisting people in doing worship. Did some of them take advantage? Probably. That's just the nature of buying and selling. It happens. But that's not why Jesus did this. He did this because everything that was going on in the temple looked good but it was bearing no fruit. He was not reforming or cleansing the temple. He was halting the operations as a form of judgment. God had instructed the prophets in similar fashions, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others, to do the same thing, and Jesus was just stepping into this prophetic action of shutting the temple down. He came into the temple the day before, and the money changers would have been doing it then, so why didn't he do it then? He's fulfilling the prophecy. He's shutting this place down. What Jesus saw in the temple was that they were no longer playing the role in which God had designed it for. It had become corrupt by not just the money changers alone. It had become corrupt by ideologies that pulled it away from what they were designed to do in the first place, which was to facilitate an encounter with the Almighty God. And they weren't doing that. And so Jesus says, may no one ever eat from your fruit ever again until eternity. Now Jesus was to be the new temple that, and people would encounter God through him and they would belong to his communities and followers of him and they would be drawn to God through Jesus. He is, he is rather passing judgment on the leadership that looked to the presence of the temple as God's endorsement for their complacency. They would say, oh, we have a temple. Herod rebuilt it. We have a temple here. We don't have to be uh, mindful of what, what we're worshiping. We don't have to be really mindful of how we live. We have the temple. God's presence is with us. That is a stamp of endorsement. We look like we're being blessed, and we look like we're blessing other people, but the fact is they're making cultural accommodations, and they were leading people away from God instead of pointing towards what God required. Jesus explains what he's doing in the following sentences, and both are quotes from Isaiah 56. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer that all nations may encounter God, and you're robbing people of that opportunity. The chief priests in verse 18 and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began to search for a way to kill him. They feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They would have known what Jesus was doing here. They would have known what Jesus was talking about. They would have heard the references and the overtones of Isaiah and Jeremiah and others and knowing that Jesus is judging what's happening in the temple. And he's attacking the very core of how they've been teaching people. And they didn't like it, yet they couldn't do anything about it. Now in verse 19, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went, off, went out of the city. In the morning... As they went along, they saw a fig tree withered from its roots, the very same fig tree 
Peter remembered what Jesus had said and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. This whole section is a living parable, and it comes to an end here. The picture of the temple, what the temple was intended to do, was now dead. The prophecy is fulfilled, and it's a warning to us. It begins with the, profession, the procession that shows us that they were more interested in the agendas that they carried. They were more interested in the palm branches and the Hosea, blessed is the kingdom of who? David, not the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David. They were more concerned with the agendas that they had rather than they were Jesus. In the middle, the temple was going through the motions of sacrifice, looking like they were busy, like they were doing good. How do you avoid awkward conversations at work? You walk fast on your phone, right? Or you put something to your ear and make it sound like you're, you're on the phone call and, and you're too busy, you're too busy, I'm busy, I'm important. That's what they were doing in the temple. Look it, I'm busy, we're busy, we're doing sacrifices, we're doing everything we're supposed to do. We're going through the motions of worship. However, they were utterly disconnected from what they were intended to be. They were chasing down other agendas. It looked good, but it was completely lifeless. It was disconnected from the purpose and, and, and instead was chasing the movements and the agendas that were bringing zero fruit. And I'm not saying that Israel and Christians are the same thing or that Israel represents the church. That's a whole theological study for another time. You get into dispensationalism and a whole bunch of other theologies that we could have a lot of fun talking about. But there's some warnings in this for us today. If you said yes to Jesus, and I hope you have. If you haven't, I'd love to talk to you. If you've said yes to Jesus, Peter has a name for you. He calls you a royal priesthood. And that's a sign saying that you represent God to the people around you. That's what priests are. They're the go-betweens, the stand-ins. Peter says that if you said yes to Jesus, you are a royal priesthood. You belong. And priests are places where people can come and encounter the living God. How? By us living our lives. That, and while we live our lives in pursuit of Jesus, people will be drawn to him. Yet here's the danger that we see in Scripture. We have the propensity, being priests and living and walking temples, is what Paul calls us, we have the propensities to chase down ideologies, to chase down our own movements, and make accommodations that, of how, make accommodations that don't line up with what Scripture tells us to live we start doing the same thing that the temple was doing back in those days. And what ends up happening is the same thing that happened in the temple. We might look good. You might have everything figured out. Everyone might look at you and go, oh man, they agree with this, they agree with that, they do this, they march in that parade, they do that. They have everything. But you're disconnected from your entire source of life. And though you might look good, you might have a lot of leaves, you're lifeless, you're fruitless. When the body of Christ, when we're all together, not just our church, but other churches, when the body of Christ begins to elevate anything other than Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and when that, when that, removes, when that does not become our rally cry, we've lost our way. When we chase politics over Christ, and it doesn't matter if it's right, left, center, center, left, center, right, whatever, it doesn't matter. When we elevate that, we've lost our way. 
when we allow cultural accommodations to water down the truth and ethics of Scripture, we've lost our way. When we elevate movements, rallies, causes, symbols, all in the name of justice, yet we ignore the place where justice lives, at the foot of the cross, where everyone is equal, we've lost our way. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, you lost your saltiness. You're not distinct anymore. You just look like everybody else. You've lost your way. You might look good on the outside, but you're a decaying fig tree on the inside. Revelations 2 says this. It gives, it gives the same picture, right? Jesus is walking through the seven churches in the very beginning of Revelation, and he's visiting them, and he's examining them. He goes to Laodicea, uh, and he looks at them. He goes to Smyrna, but there's one church that, uh, honestly, it haunts me with what he says. He walks up to the church of Ephesus, and he says this. I hold this against you. You've forsaken the first love or the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The lampstand was symbolic of the power to give light to people who were trapped in darkness. Before this verse, uh, John is writing and he says, he goes through it, how good they've been doing. You've endured hardships. Yet in the midst of all of those good things that they've done, they've lost it. They pursued and fallen in love with other movements and they've lost sight of Jesus. And the solution is, is simple for them. Return. Drop these other agendas. Return to what Christ is doing. At the center of all of it needs to be Jesus, and if it's not there, it's going to fade away. I was asked this week by a friend, um, we were on a, a phone call, and he says, what's the major danger for the major danger, that rhymes, what's the major danger for the church today? And there's three of them. But the first one is simply what we're looking at today. The church is chasing everything but Christ. We're trying to be relevant. We're trying to be hip. We're trying to elevate whatever it, the world tells us to elevate. And in doing so, we're chasing other things and not Jesus. We've lost our focus. We've lost our first love. Now, the people that day, that, that Palm Sunday, today's Palm Sunday, they come, they, they're looking for a revolution. They're looking for Jesus in their image. We don't have branches. We don't have... Uh, Hosanna, clever words. We don't have battle cries, but we have allegiances. We have likes. We have our own hopes and ambitions. We have a culture that tells us that we have to stand with blank and side with blank and do so. And I can't believe you have to agree with this. You have to say this. And when we elevate those things more than we do Jesus, these warnings that Jesus talks about are exactly to us. You are a fig tree. Your job is to produce fruit. And when we forget what we're supposed to be about, we drift and we go away. Paul has a big warning for this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we look at and go, it's the love book, right? Love is patient, love is kind. No, that, that book is a Paul giving them a good old tongue whooping. He's saying, look, you're being carried away by false teachings. You're accommodating people. You're following the wizards that come through. You're following these philosophies of Gnosticism and Stoicism. And you're going the wrong way. 
and then in the midst they have somebody sleeping with their mother-in-law. You're going the wrong way, and you're accommodating this. And Paul says, stop it. You're chasing down the wrong kingdoms. You're hoping for the kingdom of David, and you've lost sight to what the kingdom of God is trying to grow within you and bring fruit. Sometimes we chase fruit, and we don't chase the tree. We chase the results, and we don't chase what Jesus is trying to do. We don't chase Jesus. Today's Palm Sunday, and usually we have kids running around with palm branches, and we celebrate, and we say, Hosanna, Hosanna, yay, yay, and we celebrate, thinking it's a great Sunday. No, this was a bad day in the city of Jerusalem. This was the beginning to a, a rough week for Jesus. And we'd be wise to, on Palm Sunday, all of us take a hard look at the agendas where we've started to chase other kingdoms instead of the kingdom of God. Where we've started to align ourselves with this idea of Jesus that we could make in our own image and left Jesus somewhere out town. The ways that were not ripe where we should be. The ways that we represent a fig tree. We'd be wise to pay attention to it, especially this week, as we come to celebrating his death and ultimately his resurrection that gave us victory over death, that inaugurated his kingdom and not ours. So today, I ask you, which kingdom do you chase? Are you, you we're a fig tree. Are, are, are you ready? Jesus comes to your heart. He knocks on your door and he says, hey, how's the fruit? What do you say? Do you recognize his voice? Are you chasing down whatever Facebook tells you to chase down, whatever the media tells you to chase down, instead of chasing after Jesus? As we enter into Holy Week, it's a stark reminder of where our loyalties lay. And we all have palm branches in our hands in some ways. And it's symbolic that they lay them at the feet of Jesus, but their hopes were wrong. I wonder if we laid our palm branches down at the foot of Jesus and said, Jesus, this kingdom that I'm chasing with the palm branch and the, and the revolt and the hosannas, I need to give them back to you. Because I've made your kingdom in my way, and my way doesn't always line up with your way. And I need to surrender some of my allegiances so I can take a look at what you're trying to do this week in my life and what I'm doing. And in a way, rededicate ourselves to the temple cause that we all represent. That when people come to us, they will have an encounter with the Almighty God. Whether you're in this building, or whether you're in your office, whether in your car, that they would have an encounter and be drawn to the truth and power of Christ. So today, let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads. Let's examine ourselves. We're entering a week where we begin to look at what Christ has done for us. Let's surrender ourselves to his purposes. Let's surrender our agendas, our motivations, Let's ask the Spirit to, to, to point out the places where we've accommodated things that don't even belong in the kingdom of God. The figs up 
it's time to look at this. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you that, that you give us a solution uh, to chasing down other loyalties. And the solution is easy. Stop it. Lay him down. Pursue me. God, would you be the center of what we do here? May we lift up Jesus' name as the firm foundation of where we stand. We don't stand on anything else. We don't stand with parties. We don't stand with organizations. We don't stand with movements. We stand with Christ. And as you say in your Gospels, when we build our house on that, it is a sure foundation that can withstand any kind of storm. Everything else shifts like sand, and we see that. There's always a new thing. But you stand firm. God, may we hear this warning and take it to heart. May you search us today. May you realign us to your purposes, your hope, your kingdom, what you're doing around us. May we live into this title of a royal priesthood ready to point people to an encounter with the Almighty God. It's in your name we ask.